Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you already know the 50-year mission is definitive oral history of Star Trek. And Secrets of the Force will tell you everything you want to know about the history of Star Wars. But what you probably don't know is Ed Gross and I have a new book coming out this July. They shouldn't have killed this dog. The complete uncensored ass-kicking oral history of John Wick, Gun Fu, and the new age of action. Coming from St. Martin's in hardcover, digital, and audio. You can order it today. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, a podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. Like, four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may yeah. happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling like Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Sadly, the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away oh. overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate fantasy theme weeks of classic films. From 1998, film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight. Yes! Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident, self-assured style. Lex Luthor in Superman. What is it about Gene Hackman that... uh... His performance, it's off the charts, but still in reality. Fiendishly gifted. 1981, Sam Raimi Opus, The Evil Dead. Oh, yes, fine choice. Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have. Charade. Oh, so Directed by Stanley Donnan. It's a textbook screenplay. It's just effortless, and there's not a wrong note in this movie. Can't say enough great things about it. We'll be back next Friday with an all-new episode of The 430 Movie, wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us now. For the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Next time on Star Trek, The Next Generation. I accept your challenge, Doctor. I wouldn't miss it. Dr. Pulaski challenges Data to solve the Sherlock Holmes mystery in the holodeck. There is your killer. Fever! But the evil Moriarty seizes the ship's computer. The time for games is over. In a ruthless plot to sabotage the Enterprise on Star Trek The Next Generation. Welcome back to the Trexperts Briefing Room, where industry professionals curate audio commentaries with creators, creatives, and diehard fans of the Star Trek franchise. This is part two of our interview with writer Brianna Lane to discuss the season two episode of The Next Generation, Elementary, My Dear Data. While we ordinarily like to start the show with me rambling on a bit about philosophy and existentialism, instead we're just going to jump right on into where we left off last time and start our commentary for the finished episode of Elementary, My Dear Data. Hope you enjoy the show. But because I cannot help myself, I will throw out my favorite Sherlock Holmes quotes. Once you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Enjoy the show.
Um, but now let's uh, let's hop into the actual episode itself. Um, I'm sorry this has taken a while, but um, okay. but uh, we can get right here into the actual episode, and this will become a two-parter. I think this was a okay. But um, so you should see a Google Chrome screen on your screen right now, and. Mm-hmm. We'll hit play. Listeners out there again, we are watching uh, season two, episode three, Elementary, My Dear Data. Um, in other words, the one where Data, uh, as we've already been talking about all through the episode, is uh, in, tro- in the holodeck as Sherlock Holmes. Uh, in three, two, one, engage. And for my money, this episode is a warp nine of an episode because <laughs> I love Sherlock Holmes so much. Yeah. Uh, it's just one of my favorites. Um, but yeah, I mean, as you were talking about earlier, there was, you know, the the whole B kind of plot line of it all is basically gone from the finished products. And um, we're, we're instead now starting in a very different kind of way where uh, Jordy and um, Data are uh, uh, discussing for the first time um, entering the holodeck uh, to, to take on the roles of, of uh, Holmes and Watson. Right. So how was it writing for uh, Data and Jordy? Oh, easy peasy. I mean, when you yeah. have good actors who are who speak very specifically a certain cadence, have a, you know, have their own cadences that they've mm-hmm. created for the role, it becomes a breeze to write for them. So no problem there. I've written and Lavar came and did a play of mine. Oh yeah? Yeah, he hadn't done any theater since he was at USC before Roots. And we and I wrote a play a few years ago. Um for him to be the star of, because uh, he pre-committed to it, which I will thank him until the day I die. <laughs> he agreed to do it and was still there when we finally got around to doing it and uh, hung in there. It was, it was, it was, yeah, it was this time of year actually. Yeah, um, yeah, he was amazing. He won a couple of awards for it and whatnot. It was really, it was a, it was about a story about a man who sells you your appropriate death. Wow, uh, he was that guy, and so. Um, yeah, he's amazing. So, but it's a breeze to write for him because he can he can mm-hmm. do anything. But he has certain natural rhythms that you can play, you can play to really well. Uh, so I did. I wasn't writing for Jordy when I wrote the play. I was writing for Lavar. But yeah. when I wrote when I wrote for this, it was just easy to pick up their voices and and write to them. So it was even even though we had the formal Victorian stuff going on, right? So the certain certain ways of speaking, but it was still matched up to how the, these particular actors did it. And of course, Picard was, you know, was easy. Right. Uh, so, cause he's, he naturally, Patrick Stewart naturally goes into that. So. Yeah. They all had fun with it. I know they had fun with it. Well, I'm sure they did. And what's this? Uh, <laughs> I do like this. I don't think she even gets a name of this ensign here. <laughs> <laughs> she gets a line. So, that's so a perplexed. She does. Yeah. I'm sure she's yeah. living large on those royalties. I've told this Um, but she's like, no idea what's happening. <laughs> uh, was the business with the ship, because that's not in their first draft, but was the business with the the ship uh, from the second draft or was that something that um, um, another writer brought to it? Oh, the the ship, the, ship, the, ship, yeah. the wooden ship? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was in the second draft. That was in the second draft. It was in my draft. Got it, got it. It was uh, it was after the note of we don't want to do the comedy thing. What, you know, come up with another <laughs> bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they weren't big on comedy in the next generation, were they? Well, I mean, I thought it was appropriate for data. That was the perfect way to do it. Was try to teach him more about how to be human, teach him about comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a 
I don't know, middle of season one, I think there was an episode where he's trying to discover comedy. Um, was it season one? Maybe it was season two even, but like, it just, it just, it just I think doesn't. it was two, because when I got lost out of mine, I think it appeared later. It appeared later, yeah. yeah. That yeah. sounds right, actually, because Guinan was involved, actually. That, that Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember. He I wasn't knew in we, season one. I knew it was a bit we'd need to do at some point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It uh, it sadly didn't didn't work super well in that episode. Yeah. He, it's very tragic. He goes and visits like a, a holographic uh, comedian and oh, tries God. to get taught comedy. And I think in the end, it's just revealed of like you can't. And that was the end of the episode. And it's just yeah. like, oh, <laughs> that's such a bummer. Well, I, had, I had him doing the you know major look joke. You did, right? yeah. We didn't get there to the end of the script, but yes, no. that was the final final line. Line was him uh, successfully telling a joke, which was great. Exactly. Um, I had uh, for many years um, inside baseball stuff for listeners out there, but you're always encouraged to give thank you cards in Hollywood these days. If you go to a meeting, you should leave a thank you card or send a thank you card to people around Christmas, or whatever. And uh, for years, I had bought like some custom made, um, uh, uh, like. Thank you. Not really thank you cards, but just like cards that had um, Data and Jordy in uh, their yeah. Victorian England attire. Because there you go. That's uh, I probably made half a cent. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean it. It was definitely not licensed, unfortunately. Oh, okay. Maybe <laughs> I shouldn't explain that. Better not tell but, me. Uh, but uh, I just I always love this look. A lot. Well, we can talk about the well it's running. We can talk about Paramount and the character rights to Moriarty. Yes, of course. Um, because of the, for listeners out there, there was some some legal trouble associated with this episode. Yeah, not so much trouble as interesting. Interesting. <laughs> bit. Um, in the when you write scripts for a series where their primary characters are already there, right? They're already invented. You get credit for the story. You don't get credit for you don't get the created by for the for the series because it's already there. Oh, there I am. Um, you are middle the old me. The old me, and so. Um, if you create a new character and the new character is substantive, particularly if that character comes back, right, and gets two episodes, then I think that may be the rule. It has to be back twice. Um, it has to come back. Then you get a then the guild bills the studio for a character payment, which is next to nothing. I think back in the day it was $150 or $200. Uh, it can't be much more than that now. And so when I was on Remington and I created Major Descoin, then when the Major came back, I got a character payment. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was on um, In the House and I created a, a girlfriend character that LL Cool J had, you know, had received a wrong number message from, and she became a regular, even though you never met her, right? She was just a voice on a phone. Um, and uh, so I got paid a character payment on that. And then when I did this, I created Moriarty. Now, everybody thinks... What do you mean you created Moriarty? He was in he was in the books, he was in the stories, he was in the movies. He was in the movies, but he was not in the stories in the original Doyle. He was referenced. Holmes suddenly spoke of him, right? He came out of nowhere right at the end when Doyle wanted to stop writing the Holmes stories and retire from it, uh, and he wanted to kill him off. And so the way he killed him off is he suddenly Holmes popped up and said, there's this king of crime, you know, this king of crime, emperor of crime, and I don't know how to catch him and blah, 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 blah. And then they go over the Reichenbach Falls. But there's never a scene where you actually see Moriarty. You see people work for him. You see the crimes that he's been behind, but you never actually meet him or see him. Holmes describes him, uh, but 
he doesn't exist. I mean, he really, he doesn't, there's never a line of dialogue. You know, I mean, he has a line of dialogue in hearsay being quoted by somebody else saying this or that about him, but he's not actually in the stories. And so when they made the movies, though, they wanted it to be a hero against a villain. And so with the Basil Rathbone, you know, Sherlock Holmes is, they created a Moriarty for most of the stories, most of the new stories so that he could be in it in some way. Data. Which I think is worth really emphasizing. Like I'm obsessed with Sherlock Holmes. I'm I'm probably even more of a Sherlock Sherlockian than I am a Star Trek fan. And yet, when you brought that up to me, I was like, no, really, no, 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 no. And then I thought about it. I was like, oh my god, that's right. Like, like Moriarty is only ever mentioned in past tense or off screen or like Holmes is re re reciting a, a discussion point with, but he's never actually. Um, on camera. And it was just, it, I was just like blown away when you said that. I was like, oh. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't cast him. You couldn't describe him to a casting director because he's yeah. just not there. Right. So, so that came up was that uh, the guild wanted to build Paramount for the 150 bucks. And Paramount said, no. Because <laughs> they own, they own, first of all, because the Doyle stuff was in public domain and they owned the rights to the movies to whatever extent they were still copyrighted. So they yeah. didn't want to. For some reason, they didn't want to open the door. 150, you know, it wasn't they couldn't afford 150 bucks. They somehow saw that as a could open the door to God knows what, and so it became this humongous litigation. I mean, I was on the outside looking in. They would just tell me every few months what happened, but they got an expert, like a Holmesian expert, a literature expert, up out of Stanford or Berkeley. I can't remember which, but up north California. Uh, and then it was the battle of the experts and everybody submitted briefs and it was a whole thing. And it went to some final binding arbitration and the arbiter, arbiter ruled um, that it was not a new character, which was just wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it was wrong. So I didn't get my 150 bucks. I didn't really care about that, but it was. <laughs> But it was interesting. So there's really that is so fascinating. And I think for a long time, that was um, no fun. And it's still kind of circulated as like an ex uh, a reason slash excuse for like why this didn't turn into a two-parter or into a recurring kind of uh, Sherlock Holmes holodeck storyline. Well, we got um, the second one. We got Chip in a Bottle. We did, right? yes. Mm -hmm. um, but that was several years later. Um, but uh, I, I by, by the way you're talking about it, it sounds like that's not quite true. That's a bit of a misconception. It's like... It was a thing, but it wasn't really a big thing, but it also was kind of a thing, but it's, you know. Well, it was supposed to be the next season. That was one of the ones I was contracted for. Oh, okay. I see. Okay. Right? Okay. Um, I had I, that one, and I had one that was kind of a Wizard of Oz one. Mm. Um, uh, a sort of Wizard of Oz meets, meets uh, um, God, what was, what's the Conrad book? Heart of Darkness. Oh, wow. yeah. It was sort of a planet that was being terrorized by a, an entity that would show up every so often just to scare them. Yeah. <laughs> that was sort of it. Um, and of course, the Enterprise got involved and told them to knock, that there's nothing to be afraid of. It's all it's just a big fake. And so um, those were the two I was going to do for the next season that Pillar put the kibosh on. Yeah. And I got paid for the story on that one. And they actually gave me another story and I wrote it. I, I, anyway, I got paid for one of them. Um, and, then, uh, and then they did ship in a bottle based on what should have... They took enough of what was originally there that I'd written, but they really didn't do much of good, a very good job with it. Yeah. Do you have any recollection of what your initial uh, idea was for 
the following. Just being unfair, Doctor. You mean in terms of story or country? Yeah, just like in terms of like what you were thinking for the the third season. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was you know, it's the return of Moriarty, who was you know, uh, he was he was he was sort of more wonderfully malevolent in the second one because mm-hmm. he had a better he had a better sense of self. And he really knew how to handle things, and he was, and he didn't need their help at that point. He was really determined to, to be there, and became could be, you know, be a more expansive problem outside of the enterprise. So, yeah. um, you know, not like not like Q, not like the board, but you know, another one of those kind of notions of something that's out there that can always pop in and give them trouble. Yeah. I just want to comment on the scene that we just watched in the uh, 10 forward where Dr. Pulaski is talking about the difference between data and people. I mean, that's that's a very Star Trekky kind of scene, you know, talking about, you know, artificial intelligence and sort of the philosophy behind it. And I, I love that scene. Yeah, I mean, that's what the whole episode was meant to be. <laughs> yeah. to really continuously dig out what does it mean to be human? What does it mean? I mean, we did a lot of that, with, or they did a lot of that with data anyway. What does it mean to be human? Mm-hmm. Measure of a man and all that nonsense. So it's just, what you know, what is it, in this case, what does consciousness bring to the table? Yeah. You know, not just what is humanity, but what, what does consciousness give us or bring us? And do, and do we exist? Does information exist? And does it... Does time move forward without consciousness? Yeah. I mean, that was really the the Moriarty trick. If you if you're not there, if you're not thinking somewhere and you're not operationalizing, acting on your environment, um, do you change? Does it change? Do you exist at that moment, or are you just frozen in time and space somehow? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Information continues to exist, so it potentially could be buffeted by other things. Right. Hmm. You know, so whatever form it's in, other other people can be acting on that. You could, when your conscious, do you come, when your consciousness comes back in the case of Moriarty, have you remembered, as they did, have you remembered things that you did while you were all, you know, locked up thinking you were, you were alive, but you weren't? Or do you suddenly wake up as a stranger in a strange land, you don't know where you are and what's going on and how everything has changed? Uh, or... How do those? How does all that coalesce again when your consciousness is is returned to you? Yeah, right. Where are you, and how old are you, and what's going on? So, we were going to get into all that. We just didn't get to. Yeah, which was really fascinating. I, I really appreciated that about about your first draft of the script too. I think it's it's funny too when you look at the scene, um, which is a similar version does exist in the first draft, which is sure. uh, the computer kind of just just you know putting all the home stories into a blender and then sticking yeah. them back out again. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that sounds like a computer thing to do. <laughs> and, uh, but it's a nice little like uh, uh, failed first attempt at, at this wager, which um, which I appreciated. But Right. Uh, well, it was, yeah, it was, it was scattering all the stories in different ways so that you wouldn't know which direction you were going in. And yet they were all, they were all familiar images, but they didn't belong here. Right. Yeah. Right. So, but but he would, but data would have no problem piecing it together, creating a logic out of it. You know, I'll tell you, going back to the to the first scene, uh, which was like the the first uh, moment of of data and Holmes in the in the holodeck. Um, the scene plays out, and as a kid watching it, I, I was convinced that was like an actual scene from a home story. And when I got older <laughs> yeah. and read through the whole can, I was like, "Where is it? It's not here." <laughs> um, and uh, 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 but. Um, but it's a really nice scene. And of course, here we have kind of the introduction of Moriarty, right. um, which I think is 
way less good than than your first draft introduction. Like here, it's more of like an easing, rising tension slowly, you know, um, and you see a cutaway of Moriarty gaining uh, uh, higher awareness, which I much prefer your version, which has kind of the big reveal of him and, and kind of the kind of evil uh, moment of introduction. Um, well, he's come further along and he's already manipulating things. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So we're just further into it. Yeah. And also in your first draft, uh, Data is the one who orders the computer to give a... Right. To give a... a, a, a to create a villain that could compete with him. Whereas here, it's Geordi. Um It's gone now. Right. Well, you saw the difference in the apologies at the end, too. Yes. Absolutely. Right? And the, the way... But that, that all changed by the second draft. Those are the kind of notes I got between the first and second. Where they said, okay, we want it to be you know, Jordy who's on the line, not data, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think it, it works. It gives him a little more to do, which isn't a bad thing. But right. um, Jordy I, more to do? Yeah, yeah. It gives Jordy yeah. a little bit more to do. But um, I definitely appreciated because in the first draft, it came, it, it served the point more that like data did it because he couldn't really imagine it going wrong. Right, exactly. Which is to your point of like, the machine's not, you know, an Android lacks that imagination. Um, but once, obviously, once that gets lost a little bit in the shuffle, uh, you know, Jordy, given Jordy a bit more to do, makes sense. Well, I mean, data. I mean, data as a character was not ego driven because he didn't have the ego, but he believed he knew everything. Yes, right. Yes. <laughs> right. So, so that was just natural for him to think that nothing's going to beat me. I mean, I'll tell it what to do. So the notion of telling the computer to find a way to beat me is. Kasparov playing against you know B- Deep Blue and seeing who's gonna yes go, right, um, and eventually the computer's smarter because in a limited way it's smarter. In, in, in this case, it knows his vulnerability. Yeah, mm-hmm. got to talk about Daniel Davis here, who plays uh, Professor oh, he's Moriarty. He's, he's, yeah. he's so good. <laughs> he's a uh, uh, you know, he, he made, I mean, I guess I, I would say he's best known for this performance personally, but I'm biased. I, guess. I think that's, but, that's but, really sort of the thing I know him for. Yeah. Yeah. But he was a series regular in a show called The Nanny um, back in the oh, 80s, right, right. Well, which was a long running show that most of us have forgotten. Right. <laughs> yes. And rightfully so. Yeah. So, rightfully <laughs> so. Uh, that doesn't stop the executives from trying to pitch a revival for a number of years. Oh, no. But he, yeah, he's terrific. <laughs> He's so good. Um, uh, and I think we missed the classic shot, which I think was probably the shot that appeared in all those trailers that you got that $150 for. But, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> that I did, didn't get that. That you didn't? I'm sorry. Yes, that's, that's, <laughs> uh, that's great. The costumes are so good in this too. They just... Yeah, yeah. The, the production design on this show was amazing. Absolutely amazing. The people loved it. And the people working on it loved it. And they went really went the extra mile to do all everything they could to make things as real as possible. Yeah. And when you stop to think about Star Trek, the truth is on a production side, left-handed. It's not once you build the sets and amortize them, it's not that expensive because you've got a yeah. lot of permanent sets. I remember the sound stage it was on. They took me to the sound stage the very first day I was there talking about stories. They sort of walked me over and said, "Well, you know, might as well see what it looks like you're going to be writing for it." And to go on the big sound stage and see all these permanent sets there, you know, they just, they just decide which one they're lighting for the day and we move them around a little, but um, it's already all there. The bridge is there, yeah. this is there, everything's there. So, you know, it's like a soap opera. I mean, it's all ready to go. They don't really have too much externality. 
Mm-hmm. Not like you're going and shooting in, in Marina Del Rey for the weekend. Yeah, <laughs> right? It's all self-contained. So building the street and all that was the big, you know, was the big difference and a chance for all the designers to to flex their wings and do something special. Yeah, it really looks like it's outdoors too. Yeah, it does. no, they they lit it great. Yeah, and as you talked about earlier, but uh, Rob Bowman directed the episode. Um, I was going to say, and Bowman was great with the smoke and the lighting. So good, the whole night so good. But he directed. Uh, Three episodes, I believe. I, I should have looked this up beforehand. Three or four episodes of The Next Generation, but primarily was known for uh, his work on The X-Files. Uh, yeah, and a few where he was later. like co-producer or something. Co-producer. Yeah, and he, he directed the the first X-Files movie, um, which uh, I still contend is great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people do not, but they're stupid. But <laughs> hey. I liked, X, I liked X-Files. It, always, it ran, it had the problem I've lectured about many times that you had to deal with, which is the, which was finally resolved, which is why don't, you know, why don't these smart aliens kill Mulder? Why do they continue <laughs> to keep alive uh, one guy? But you know yeah, what yeah. happened, right? How they finally resolved that? So I teach students, or writers, you've got to, at some point when you have a series that's about a hero up against a continuing villain who should kill him, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. should get him out of the way. There's no yeah. reason to keep him there except to cause you trouble. The audience will go with you as long as you, you don't have to give them an explanation in full. You have to just let them know, you know, it's a problem. Yeah. And the one thing Chris Carter finally did was there was a scene where somebody finally said to the smoking man, why don't you just fucking kill them all? <laughs> yeah. And, and the smoking man took a few pauses, you know, few puffs and pauses and went, oh no. We have plans. Yes. <laughs> That's all it took. That's all he needed all, to do to cover the biggest hole in, you know, in a hundred episode series you can think of. Yep. <laughs> so, so true. So true. Uh, <laughs> no and they, tr- they tried. They tried. They tried. Uh, but here's the moment that uh, I think was the big uh, reading through your first draft was such a, a, a pleasant surprise to find this. That, uh, uh, that it was Doyle. That it was Doyle, yeah. And I was like, oh, wow, that is so clever. And it, it was more than just, you know, a, a minor change here and there. But I was reading that and I was like, oh, wow, this is this is, this would have taken it in a very different direction. That would have been very refreshing. Had It, had it just it. made it more <laughs> fulsome, you know? Yeah. It, it made it all about Doyle and Holmes. And, you know, it, it just made it really that place as opposed to... Is the victim's common law... I mean, sometimes you get, people give you changes and you just really don't know why. Yeah. Why isn't it Doyle? And somebody I'm sure thought, um, well, because Doyle's not fictional, so how could he, you know, but it was by this point, um, the computer was making up, was, was, was melding fiction. In fact, that was the whole point. That would have been your first clue. The fact that it was Doyle in there instead of a fictional character would have been your first clue that you got trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Would have come across right away to data that, that, wait, this is, this is problem. Yeah. This shouldn't be Doyle. Yeah. And instead, they kind of uh, uh, condense, I would say, two acts into, into like, you know, as you just saw right there, Data spots Moriarty in the distance, mm-hmm. and and that kind of solves the problem of, of like, you know, who's behind oh. this? What's the, you know? Uh, whereas in your draft, it's it's much more of a of a mystery that that even Data himself has difficulty solving, um, and it's uh, uh, whereas here it's just like, oh, that's there he is. Hmm. Let's go say hi. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I still love it. I don't care. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, and again, just beautiful set design here. I, you know, every time I see this, though, when they walk through this door, 
it always throws me because I always think we're actually looking at the back of a stage wall for a minute. Um, uh, just because, like, I don't know. There's something about the the woodwork. Um, it just makes me think, like, oh, they're just repurposing like the back. Well, of it's the framing. Stands. It's not. It's yeah, not it's Victorian right framing. There. Yeah, and I was this saying, is not. Oh. I mean, you're looking at you're looking at uh, the framing on the left doesn't match the framing on the right historically. Yes. yes. Right. And London yeah. wouldn't be just made during the Victorian era. It would be something older that's been adapted during the Victorian era. Mm-hmm. It just wouldn't look like that. No offense, right. to, no offense to anyone, because I love the set, but yeah, it's, it's, it's totally beautiful. right. It it's beautiful. Like that. Yeah. Um, and here, as you, as you said, instead of uh, Data being the one who's like, I don't know what to do now, uh, instead Data, you know, deduces uh, the door. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it should have been his conundrum to deal yeah. with. Yeah. Um, but it's still you're throwing a little tack here. A little tech, a little tech. You know. It's still fun. It is. <laughs> and I, I'm the king of tunnels and smoke. Every show I've ever been on, the first thing I do is like, can I? Can we build a tunnel? Can we go underground? <laughs> can we get dirty? Can we mess? Can we throw you in? Can we throw people in water and mud and rats <laughs> running by? Well, especially in a really clean show like The Next Generation. Yeah. Oh, when we did, when I was doing Remington, I mean, I, I, I. I take the blame or the credit for Pierce Brosnan getting Bell's palsy because I stuck we stuck him in a box culvert full of cold water. And <laughs> <laughs> the next thing you know, he had Bell's palsy. But I just oh boy. we always had her and Laura has Stephanie had those, those snakes in her head in one scene. I mean, we just did crazy stuff. But I just like you know mess up your heroes, man. Have fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The opponent created by the author Conan Doyle. And like the spider, I feel the strings vibrate. Ah, there he is. There he is. Yep. Well, there he is. He's quite good. He, he's, he, was, he was wonderfully malevolent here in the early going. He made it clear because it was like, you want to make it clear. No, I'm still me. I'm still yes. a bad guy. I'm still yeah. a bad guy. Yeah. And, you know, in the end, it, the takeaway is almost like knowledge, uh, cures uh uh evil (laughs) (laughs) which is loosely kind of the star trek thing anyway but so it's like uh uh you know it it's that's not quite the real world unfortunately and um uh but it is god he just he just he brings so much to this role and i i just you know he he's so good He's done a lot of stage work. I mean, it's not to say he hasn't had another career beyond this. He did a lot of stage work. He's obviously appeared on a lot of other shows, but um, but you can just tell this guy has just so much talent. Well, Star Trek has always had a lot of... I mean, I've worked with a lot of the actors and a lot of the people they've brought in over the years, and there have been such good... I've done a lot of stuff with John Billingsley. I mean, they're just mm-hmm. wonderful actors who can do anything. Billingsley can be your best friend or a serial killer, you know, and... But in the same instant, easy for him to switch. So they're just good guys. Good yeah. yeah. And to which we can speak. So we have Moriarty figuring things out. Yeah. Well, it's figure, able to show you what he has anecdotally able to access without actually having figured it out yet. Right. I can bring the arch up. I don't entirely know what it means. I can draw this picture. I don't I have no idea what I'm looking at. What is this whole? Yeah, it's uh, it, it 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 the takeaway is more that the computer is endowing him with information um, intermittently right. as opposed to him um, uh, figuring it out all himself. Um, 
but I do love, I mean, you know, again, I mean, Brett Spiner here and, and LeVar, they're, they're really, they're bringing a lot to the scene where it's... Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Data's clearly very disturbed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I do love that line. It's in, it's in the, your first draft as well, but I think your first draft hits it a little harder, which is just Moriarty crying out after him, tell me what it means, Sherlock, or right. tell me what it means, Holmes. Um, and uh, why does it frighten you? That's the, that's the big line, which I, yeah. which I love that a lot. Execute complete shutdown of the hollow. Yeah, exactly. Which is good because the audience because the audience hasn't sorted it out yet. So it's really right. the audience thing. Why is this a big deal? Yeah. Yeah. He runs as he runs off the holodeck with a with a piece of paper from the holodeck. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you really don't get to see data get spooked very often. No, you don't. You don't. Data, wait. What is it? There they oh. go marching off. And why can't we shut down the holodeck? Data, this this is impossible. It was a good act break. Star Trek is weird because it had multiple, it had extra act breaks. Yes. For extra commercials. So usually you're writing a show, right? As you know, it's maybe you've got four acts and an epilogue. Sometimes shows have a teaser, but they don't always have a break. They just go to title sequence and then come back in. This thing had like five act breaks, I think. Yeah. They were structured. I remember it was like a teaser and five. Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't do your normal structuring. You had to also think like, okay, I'm really going to be in the middle of the act and have to go to commercials. So I have to come up with an artificial dramatic moment. That, that, those kind of things were it. On whose authority? Of course, now it's all six acts. And if they can squeeze <laughs> in a seventh, they're going to. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, and again, you know, again, the difference between the finished product and your first draft is is in your first draft, Picard is like, yeah, you fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas here, he's like, don't worry about it. It happens. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, in the first draft, you couldn't do that because they were getting sucked into the Red Dwarf. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> like, we'll have to deal with that later, I think. He's going to lose the whole yeah. ship. Yeah. You didn't deal with it. So that got it. But by the time my the later drafts I did where that had dropped out, then it got to the, what you're seeing here. Yeah. Uh, were you able to go to set while they were filming? Or uh, no, because I didn't. I did I had no idea what was going on. Had no idea. Yeah. By the time You're, I showed up, they were like starting to do it. Yeah. So I didn't. I, I didn't go over while they were shooting it. Mm. What? So. When you wrote uh, later episodes, did you get a chance to go down to the set or meet any of the cast? Yeah, I mean, I did the first year. I met them all before. Before I wrote anything, I met them all and. Okay. And went down to this. I was taking the set the first day I was there. First day I was went in to meet with everybody. So I went down and saw all that stuff. Um, yeah, and then later it was the rap party was on the set, um, mm-hmm. as I recall. And then um, the second year, I definitely went down, but I don't remember what time. I don't remember where that rap party was, and I don't remember what time of year it was. But I mm-hmm. did. Yeah, I went down again. And like I said, I kept in touch with. I stayed in touch with Lavar all those years. Mm-hmm. Computer, where is Dr. Pulaski? I have to imagine. I mean, Lisa, where where were Voyager rap parties at? Like, why wouldn't they be on set? One of them was actually at, uh, at a Mexican restaurant. <laughs> oh, okay. Called El Cholo. Uh, oh, sure. Yes. Is that possible, Jordan? That's funny. There you go. I, I think another one was actually at the House of Blues. Oh, oh that's cool. Huh? Yeah, that was pretty cool. The um, Moonlighting rap party the first year was at um, the Roxy. Mm. Oh wow! Jeez, all gone. 
including. I guess I'm just a nerdy fanboy because I'm just like imagining having a rap party on the on the engineering deck and being like, that'd be cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's more fun on set. It's more fun on set. Remington, we'd one on set and one. Missing something from the holiday. Remember the other one? We did a bunch of parties in Remington. We always had parties. Sometimes we'd have parties when we rent when our episodes would run. We mm. we'd throw a party. Yeah, feels like a show that. Yeah, it was. A, I imagine it was a fun show. And, uh, fun atmosphere. Yeah, it was totally, totally fun. Acquire yeah. something which I possess. What exactly? Consciousness, sir. Hunter was not. And here we are talking about consciousness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit. But again, it's, uh, you know, data, rather than uh, establishing that Moriarty is looking to uh, uh, take command of the ship via Picard, here he is just saying, like, data's saying, like, yeah, Moriarty wants consciousness, uh, uh which, you know, it is what it is. But um, And then we just saw the first uh, kind of moment of the ship rocking back and forth. Forms might pose questions which I'd rather he didn't ask. It seems... And Picard is getting ready to take command. And, well, it had that, didn't it? It had the glitch earlier when, when Moretti first logs in, or first connects in. Yeah. Uh, there Remember was a up power... On the, up on the bridge, Worf yeah. or somebody says, what the hell? There was a power surge, a right. slight, slight power surge yeah, to the holodeck section, but uh, it's gone now. And there um, was the machine. If you if you look back at my script, it totally, every part of that machine is exactly the way I described it. Yeah? Yeah. That's very cool. Let's see if I can find that description, actually. Um, but first, I mean, Diana Moldara plays uh, Dr. Pulaski, mm-hmm. um, who is so good. And I think this is probably one of her standout episodes in the show even though she does kind of it's kind of a forced performance when she's trying to pretend like she doesn't know what moriarty's talking about but um, but i bail her out by having her say crumpet eight times (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, the uh i have a question for you you you're beginning to sound very in my does in my script does moriarty say mr computer or does he Uh, just say computer I think he just says computer, actually, yeah. Yeah, it bothered me when I remember I was watching this last night. I thought, Mr. Computer, the computer has a woman's voice. Right. True. Well, yeah, yeah. Right. So why in the world would we be calling it Mr. Computer? And I thought, well, I maybe I was such an idiot. I had no idea what voice they used. <laughs> it doesn't seem like something like that would get by me usually. So let me know what mine says. Let me try to find the... Because it would have been, I think, the first moment we see... He says uh, it all the time. Yeah. yeah, but I think like the most significant in your first draft would be like the very first moment when it's probably kind of shocking, yeah, that would be most likely the shocking reveal that he can talk to the computer. Right. Um, let me see here. But in the meantime, I have decided to approach the problem from a more familiar perspective. There's really no. Yeah, this is another really good set. Some of the knowledge from. My oh, it's world. great! They just did a great job. I mean, this mm-hmm. is. Can you? I mean, you know, you've been on shows. So how much fun is it to be able to build stuff like this and have it? Oh, you yeah. know, I'm, 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 I'm afraid uh, you did say, Mister Computer. I did. Well, um, yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was my fear. Okay, I apologize. <laughs> I, I, but I really didn't know the voice of the computer was a woman. Well, I think it's, um, uh, uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's possible that. Uh, uh, you know, he had just been able to communicate. Um, uh, uh, the computer maybe hadn't been verbal at that point. So, so there you go. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Not the kind of thing that usually slips past me, but there you go. I'm sure we could figure out some some explanation. I'll take I'll take the blame somehow. <laughs> I did read. It's not in the scripts, that's for sure, because I did read all the scripts. Well, we're in London. I hadn't seen any tape when I wrote it. 
Or allow me to leave. Right, of course. So you I did see tape. I did see tape just before I wrote the draft, though. Specs of the word. But uh, the computer would, you know, it wasn't like a constant thing. So maybe you just, it hadn't been um, hadn't been uh, seen quite yet. Um, well, we can blame it on Moriarty and just say we'll he's, blame Moriarty, yeah. he's misogynist <laughs> and he just he assumed it would, if it was a smart you thing know, running, if it was Victorian a leader running things, it had to, be, uh, had to be a man, even though it had a woman's voice. Yeah, I mean, comes from a time when, you know, very different, very different. <laughs> Uh, well, they did have Queen Victoria. There were women doing it. Yeah. That. <laughs> when did women get the right to vote in England? It, it wasn't, I think it was just before America, but it's yeah, it was around the 1920s, though, wasn't it? Yeah, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't terribly long ago. No, in the grand scheme. In the age of the country. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm trying to still find in the moments. I'm going to have to go back to my drafts now and see if it always said Mr. Computer. Hmm. Um, yeah, and this is another thing, too, where uh, not in the first draft, but the fact that Moriarty is uh, negatively affecting the holodeck um, in a kind of, and the red glow everywhere. And, you know, it's all very doom and gloom at this point. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I, visually, you're like, sure, but... Oh, and then here's the moment. Picard goes down to pick up the tuppence, which means absolutely nothing (laughs) in the actual episode. (laughs) But it did mean something. It did mean something in your script, and and I really appreciated that. Um, Just a little leftover. Oh, I guess here, I guess technically it's meant to set up this um, random uh, physical altercation between this this, uh, Picard and this thug, but... So, which is somehow supposed to establish that he's oh, Moriarty must be nearby. Physical threat, and it is a physical threat that they've yeah. over, overridden the uh, mortality protection. Oh, let go, go! Come on, he's hurting me. Not that we would necessarily know that by this. Okay, <laughs> here's 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 I, I I found the description of the machine. So here we go. I will read it. Um, Around the edge of the screen to see a smiling Moriarty standing there by what is now an assembled heap of odd machinery, gears and belts and pistons and coils, a boiler and an upright exhaust pipe, riveted iron brass plates for a covering, a large clutch lever, and a mechanical arrow indicating for engage, disengage, currently set to the ladder. And Moriarty is staring at Picard and Data, and Moriarty is wearing a uniform of oh of a Starfleet captain, which uh, that would have been fun to see him. Uh, yeah, sad we didn't get to see that. Um, in the background, Doctor Blasky is sitting at a dining table and sipping tea. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, and then on the blackboard, a rough sketch of the Enterprise, which does make it here. But um, uh, but that's it. Um, mm. I also found it funny how like Worf is in uniform here, and yet he actually uh, not in uniform in a, a, a costume, Victorian yeah. costume, but he has actually no reason to be in costume. <laughs> It's like, yeah, but it's always fun to put Worf and weird I, outfits. I know. He looks great. Steampunk, man. It's early steampunk. It is. Yeah, it's true. Um, but in your script, uh, the first draft, there's the sense of like, well, the security, there was a security team that could have like rushed the holodeck and just sort right. of swept through it to look for, for Pulaski. Right. And so there was a bit more of a reason for him being in, uh, in costume. Um. Whereas here, it's like, oh, he's in costume because he's going to go in with them, and then he just sort of stays on the outside. And right. Yeah. It's a little different, but 
I am able to use the power at my fingertips. Stuff happens. Stuff happens. <laughs> Revisions happen that don't yeah. often make sense. Yeah. Yes, they do. <laughs> I do love this existential uh, notion that you have here with Moriarty. And I guess, I mean, Lisa, you really got to examine this even further with the Doctor and, and Voyager, but the idea of like holograms who gain consciousness. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's always fun to, to sort of speculate about the singularity, you know, about yes. artificial intelligence that becomes real intelligence. Yeah. Uh, that was that was a lot of fun to to play with. This vessel, can you, say you know, at what point is it is it a really intelligent program, and at what point is it actually consciousness? Okay. And I think that's probably what they were getting at by having Troy, you know, feel Moriarty is that totally. it's, he had crossed over into actual consciousness. Yeah, totally, totally. Well, it, I mean, it is consciousness. Mm-hmm. It is consciousness. It's part of the information, similar to another device called. It's not outside of life yeah not outside of our universe it's part of it it's all part of it but i mean you you get if you really get existential you get into the notion of trees and the ground and the fungus and you know everything's got a form of consciousness to it anything, yeah. react, anything reactive and anything that can act on something has consciousness which means anything with gravity or mass yeah i loved uh, a few years ago when they 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 uh, discovered that trees actually uh, communicate with each other through like mm-hmm. low-level sound waves uh, uh, emanated through their root system. And I was like, that's, that's cool. I like that. <laughs> so, well, and, I, and, and, and fungus is the yeah. acetylcholine of a tree neural net, tree, yeah. you know, forest. You know, we have seven acres of forest here. And so we're constantly studying how, what talks to what. It's not just aspen trees being all connected up. It's like all these trees are connected with each other, at, yeah. least, mm-hmm. at least through the fungus on the ground. Which was quite yeah. a inspiration. They all talk. Um, they all talk. Yeah. Uh, you or someone asked your computer to program. There's more here. From 19th century London, and that is how I arrived. But I am no longer that creation. I am no longer. It does have a lot of similarity. Very much uh, reminiscent of the doctor talking yes. about I was created as a program, but I've become something more. Yeah. Yeah. I need to go back and rewatch um, uh, Ship in a Bottle, but I think it ends with them essentially creating an open-ended program for Moriarty yeah. just to kind of float around in. And, yep, but he exactly. believes he's actually in the real world. Right. And I would love if there was ever to be a follow-up or a novel or whatever. Um, or maybe they already have. There's a lot of stuff. I was going to say, for all we know, there has been a novel. <laughs> long-running series of novels, but uh, actually giving Moriarty a bit of a bit of more of a physical form. because of no right. since, I, since I didn't get a character payment, I'll never know. I'll <laughs> me another $150. I know I, I read recently that Leonard Nimoy had earned like half a million just from like novels because uh-huh. of royalties from novelizations or something. I was like, wow, that's that must have been a lot of books sold <laughs> that kind of money. Because I can't imagine it was like a lot of royalties. Set of, uh, you know, not that I know how those sort of contracts work, but um, Star Trek's without question the, the greatest residual generator of anything I've ever, ever seen. Yes, it is. <laughs> at, at, at any minute, it's it's playing somewhere in the world. Yeah, you just you do get checks every quarter somehow. Yep, even if it's only for like twenty seven cents. <laughs> yeah, they definitely aren't as much as they used to be, but no, it's amazing if you add it up over the years how much it added up to compared to other stuff. Yeah, uh, and here we have you know the big change again. Moriarty is is kind of aware that his fate is is doomed, and uh, so he basically concedes defeat. And yeah, and, which is a bummer. 
It's a bummer. I liked it better when he was fighting to the end. I definitely do as well. But it's, uh, there is, you know, he, he, I mean, he just turned, you know, Daniel Davis put turns on such a good performance here. Yeah. Well, he said, I mean, you know, uh, half a page ago, he, he said he's, he was evil and now he's changed. So he gave, he gave it up, gave it up. But again, he gave it up off screen. So what what fun is that? That's very true. Um, Though I do love this final moment uh, where, you know, Moriarty's like, well, you know, uh, between him and Pulaski here, I won't even try to recreate it, but it's uh, basically he's uh, lamenting the fact of of the passage of time, how he'll be ageless and Pulaski will age. And he still says, well, I'm still going to give you tea next time you show up. Tea and crumpets. I shall fill you with crumpets. Yes. Uh, Which I thought was just a really nice little moment. This is kind of a nice moment for Picard too, and that he he recognizes the intelligence, you know, he, and he doesn't want to just plain destroy it. No, yeah, I mean, he recognizes that it's now a life form. Yeah, you know, and his mission is to protect it, not to destroy it. Yeah. yeah. And again, you have to think about like, oh, we we aren't bringing in a new series regular, so right. <laughs> they right. had to be like, you right. know, because you could think like, well, you could just as they did with Voyager, right? It's like, oh, we're going to set up a holodeck just for you. Um, well, I think we should all get together and do Star Trek Moriarty. I like it. <laughs> I like that idea. <laughs> um, it's just that I can't help thinking. And this is kind of a nice little moment too. Picard is, you know, because the point of focus was shifted a little more to Geordi, right. Picard is here to uh, console him. To and, let him off uh, the hook. To let him off the hook, basically, and say like, you know, the ship is, and he's talking specifically about the, the model, uh, ship model that was damaged in the, in the shakeup. But Picard is basically saying like, this can be repaired and because nothing's, nothing's permanently damaged. And, and it's, that goes for all of us too. Yeah. Um, which I thought was, uh, you know, it's, it's nice. Um, uh, even though I liked it better as it was, uh, when it was, uh, data, who was the more <laughs> emotional arc of the book. And then the final shot, we see uh, the ship model, which I think is also the model they used for the Stargazer, but uh, back, oh, yeah? back for, because why wouldn't you reuse stuff time and time again? Um, <laughs> and that's the end of the episode. Um, you know, and uh, a fantastic episode, if I, if I do Yeah, that so. was a lot of fun. Yeah, um, it, still, it still plays well, much as we can all be critical or, and I can say, oh, it didn't have everything I wanted. And it's still, that's what I thought last night. I thought, you know, it's still a fun episode. Yeah. Yeah. I gotta let go of my own personal <laughs> craziness about it. Just look at it and say it's fun. That is the the fascinating thing that I think we all keep learning about uh, just through this show, and obviously Lisa experienced it, uh, and I'm experiencing it in a smaller way. But just the nature of television and how constantly changing it always is, and uh, yeah, you can you know it's it's it is, it is truly collaborative. I mean, you're yes. you're not writing a finished product; you're writing a blueprint other people to come in and, and handle and get yeah, their right. little fingerprints all over. Yeah. yeah, no, it is. It's a collaborative medium. And then again, as you point out, when you get to the set, it's a whole different story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the actors breathe life into it. So, yeah. Um, but a fantastic episode and one that really uh, lives on in such a way because it is so distinctive and um, is often on people's uh, top 10 list. For the always. It's crazy. Yeah. I get yeah. stuff all the time. It's always like top, top 10, top five, top this, top that. It's yeah. Crazy. Uh, well, Piranha, I mean, what's, uh, what's life been treating you to these days? Like, what are you working on right now? <laughs> Besides enjoying your seven acres of forest and, and land. Um, well, we did, a, <laughs> we did a lovely little book. My wife, um, 
Illustrated called A Tiny Tale. If anybody wants to go to a tinytale.com, there's a, there's a, a children's book for adults there. Uh, it has two read along audio versions that go with it. So you, that you hmm. listen to while you're reading it if you want, because then you can just look at the pictures and not strain your eyes actually reading words. Hmm. And John Billingsley did one of those for us. Oh, yeah. Um, he did the male read along, and then there's a female read along too that Maura Cork did. For those of you who ever watched Guts, um, she was the Guts girl. Um, and then uh, we're doing, I've got a couple of uh, a book I owe. That, you know, it's always the Dick book that spawned this episode, which is the Dickens book that I never finished, which I've got to finish like 40 years later. <laughs> um, get sidetracked by Hollywood is never a good thing. Yeah. And uh, what else? The play I did with LeVar, we might wind up doing... Somewhere else may get bigger and better at some points. Working on that, and and then um, what, what's that called? That play, the caterer, the caterer, the caterer. Um, and then uh, what else am I working on? We have a secret sci-fi project called the Peacemaker that we actually taped or meant to be a podcast before anybody knew what a podcast was. We taped many years ago when Star Trek Enterprise was just canceled. And I was writing a thing that I thought would be fun. And I called up all the actors, Star Trek and some Star Wars and a bunch of people who you would know. Um, and they all showed up and we recorded the prequel, the first 45 minutes to it. And then another first two episodes as a sample, sample chapters of the things that so we're going to finally, after all these years, debut that. It still, I think, holds up. Yeah. Um, What's that called? That's The Peacemaker. Okay. Uh, although I, there's so many, so many things called Peacemaker, it may change. Yeah, so um, you might need to change the name. Yeah. <laughs> DC might be uh, calling on you pretty soon. <laughs> yeah. No, no, because it's, it's not a, it's not a superhero character. I know, I know, I know. But it's, um, <laughs> they're gonna, they're gonna label it, but we'll change. It. I mean, it doesn't matter. So we'll, when we put it out, um, and he's the lead character has a really cool special power, special problem. So I'll, I'll, I'll I won't tease it. We'll wait till we get it where you can hear what it is. But it's. It's a curse and a and a boon at the same time. He has to live with, and so eventually we'll finally debut that and see what everybody. Now that the world of podcasts is here, well, we were so far ahead of our time. Nobody was doing it then. We we got a whole bunch of URLs. We got Pod Lit and Pod This and Pod That. All these things for it. What was it? We have some sci-fi pods to Pod Visions and. Mm sci-fi, I don't know, we got all this, we still own all these URLs <laughs> with pot and, and now that's, now as you guys know, this is the big deal, so. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a lot of people are calling this right now the uh, second uh, golden age of, of radio because it's, yes. there's just so many and it's. Oh, yeah, but it's much. not because the golden age of radio is really good. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It's, uh, it seems like every company, uh, uh, you know, out there is, is delving into podcasts, especially narrative podcasts. And, you know, some are, some are really good and some, some aren't so good, but uh, it's the fact that the theater of the mind is, is living again. And because I was remembering even uh, watching, what was I watching the other day? I was watching, oh, I was watching an episode of a uh, Cold Jack, the Night Stalker, which is a great yeah, show yeah. from the seventies. And, and they talk, there was a moment where like a library was broken into and, and a, what we would know as an audio book was stolen, but they referred <laughs> to it as a book for the blind. And I was like, oh, right. <laughs> Cause that was the only thing that audio books existed for, for a long right. time. That's right. <laughs> Um, and, uh, but I, I love audiobooks and love radio dramas. So, uh, well, I, grew uh up, I grew up loving, and it was before my time, but I grew up 
going back and getting all transcriptions and all that stuff. I loved and then doing radio at you know UCLA, but um the radio drama and radio radio production is so much fun. The question now is how how far do we have to go? When we did the Peacemaker stuff, we really, we, we went and did it through some feature film sound designers and, and really made it feature film quality sound design with what we were doing and, and outputted it for, at the time we didn't know, we outputted it for, for widescreen and small devices and you know, all, every possible format that you, could, you might want to listen to it on so that it would sound good on them all. Uh, now it's at least finally becoming kind of a universal standard of what to do. The question is how much music, how much effects, how much acting, how big a cast, how yeah. much fun do you have, how stylized do you make it, you know? Um, and we'll see what the audience is. Ultimately, we'll see what audiences can tolerate or not. I think the best part about that is that I think the whole industry is figuring that out right now too. You know, it's like the, 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 they're, they're experimenting with different things. And some of them I'm like, I don't, I don't know if you need quite this many A-list actors in your, in your thing, because that just seems like a lot of money and they all sound exactly the same, but you know, <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, but that's, it's kind of a nice time where a lot of these companies are, are experimenting in, in cool ways. Um, so there's. Well, and you guys are having fun. Oh yeah. We do it. Yeah. Now, do you do this once a week? How often is your show on? It's it's a weekly podcast. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. for some godforsaken reason. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Now, when yeah. will this air? When does this? Air? Um, pretty soon, actually. I think, and I, I imagine we. I mean, thank you again for joining us as long as you have, because yeah, thank you. We'll, we will be splitting this into two episodes because it's uh, it's well, we've been on here for over two hours. Well, so, yeah, maybe listen to it and decide if it's like like no, my I, script. I, decide if it's worth two episodes. I think <laughs> I, for my money, this you know what I loved about. I mean, I always loved Elementary, My Dear Data, and the fact that we were able to really talk about your first draft and then dig into the episode itself. I mean, that's uh, uh, it's a lot. There was a lot of a lot of great stuff in there to talk about. But. Yeah. Um, but before we sign off, uh, you know, if fans want to get in touch, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, you, the 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 uh, children's book for adults website. But do you have uh, other websites you'd like to like to tell people? About? Um, I mean, you know, we have so many websites. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I mean that's the good one. I get. I mean, I'm sure there's a. I know we have a BrianAllenLane.com website. Um, I did a. Uh, a big whistleblower expose of totally a field of corruption in higher education and some crazy scam artists. This should be a long, this should be a podcast. If anybody ever does this, it would be amazing. Called Thug the Book. If you if you just type Thug the Book into Google, you will it will bring you to that. Last chapter still do, but that a huge following as yeah. uh, at one point um, before all the, anyway, so I still gotta still write the end of it because we had, it, it ultimately brought down the, this corrupt university president mm. uh, and, a, and a lot of other, but a lot of other people got away with it to the tune mm. of millions or tens of millions of dollars of money mm. stolen. Um, so that's fun. Uh, that, that will, maybe we'll follow up with that. If anybody wants to read Thug the Book, go read it. It's a fun read. Uh, and it's, pre, it's presented as narrative prose about the event. So a nonfiction novel along with, the documentary evidence, uh, either in either in it or as a separate file. So, okay. and it ties to Hollywood. It tied, it, interestingly enough, it tied to some professors who were faking their credentials for as writers in Hollywood, <laughs> saying that they wrote this and that and then won this award and that award when they hadn't. And it was some money I'd raised from Spielberg to um, 
to fund an MFA program. And so there's all kinds. Of, anyway, it's got a lot of Hollywood ties to it, too, if you read Thug. Thug, thug the book, one word, thugthebook.com. Thug the book. Um, or just thug the book and you'll get there. And so, yeah, there are uh, lots of things, lots of things going on out there that would be fun to do or fun to see, fun to listen to. Are, are you on social media? Yeah, I'm around. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the, the, old, the old Brian Allen Lane name is still every identity is Facebook and LinkedIn and um Twitter and then I have some other identities too and current identities. So there's just a lot of stuff. But yeah, so if you go to BrianAllenLane.com, Tiny Tale was written. I wrote it as Olivier Cree de Cour. So it's under a, it's under a pseudonym. I wrote a lot of stuff under pseudonyms for TV. Yeah. And otherwise, I was sort of notorious. So I didn't like the way it came out. I would put like my late brother's name on it or my lawyer's <laughs> name on it or a mixed or made up name on it. Um, the studios got mad at me when I tried to do something like I had I-K-E, first name, W-I-T-T. That was Fox didn't let me do that. Because <laughs> so, I was mad at a series I'd worked on and how it turned out. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to think there's any other websites that are kind of good. If somebody wants to contact me, they can just... Do we give out emails? Do we do stuff like that? I mean, if you want to, I mean, it's up to you though entirely. Yeah, one has my email. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I do, let's go to the old-fashioned one, which is if anybody remembers this, then bless them for doing it. It's Bry Lane, B R I L A N E, contraction of the name B R I L A N E at Earthlink dot net. Wow. net. So well, there you go. Bry Lane um, at Earthlink dot net. You're they're welcome to buzz me or whatever. Fantastic. That's great. And if you want, you know, look, I sent you guys this the original script. If you were, in, you know, if you want to give it out as a door prize, or if you have somebody, people, you know, you don't want to send it a million places, but if you want to send out the the PDF of it, feel free. Yeah, you know, um, it, it's definitely a fascinating insight into um, uh, the process of, of television. I know, like a lot of, you know, there's 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 a fair amount of Star Trek scripts out there. There's not a lot of first drafts out there. There's a lot of right. like yeah. kind of finished drafts. Um, uh, uh, but I actually didn't even look up because I know there is a scripts out there. Um, for elementary idea data, but I didn't check if I was, I imagine that was the shooting draft, but um, I should have looked into that. Yeah, um, I've got all, I mean, I have all the drafts in storage, but the only one I ever send out is the first one. It's a, it's a good first draft. It's, very, it's, it's, it's the one to send, I think. It's, uh, I think so. I mean, it's, I, like it's, I said, I have the, the second draft I did had a lot of the changes you're seeing, yeah. but I still prefer the first. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's you. But, but Lisa, uh-huh. like, Brianna gives me a great idea of like, anytime I don't like a script, I should just change my name to another, you know, like, uh, exactly. uh, you know, uh, Paul Skywalker. What do you think about that? <laughs> there you go. Do it. Writer's Guild yeah. doesn't mind. You can, they'll keep yeah. track of your residuals for you under any name. That's, that's true. I should, I should figure that out. I have one or two. I should, I should. Uh, but anyway, um, well, listeners out there, uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at uh, TrexpertsBR on Twitter or uh, Trexperts Briefing Room on Instagram. Um, and if you'd like to read the script, uh, hit us up through there and we can uh, send it along to you. It's a, it's a fascinating read and, and um, uh, it's the whole, uh, we, we did a bit today, but there's some even more uh, really cool nuggets in there as well. 
Um, so Brianna Lane, thank you so much again for joining us. This is pleasure. Uh, nice to see you guys. You know, you it's joined us on a journey you. here today. And, uh, <laughs> we appreciate it. <laughs> we appreciate it. Um, and so, uh, until next time, uh, for, as for, for Lisa Clank and myself, oh, and I needed to thank our producer, uh, uh, Mark Elman, uh, Dean Devlin for electric entertainment, as well as everyone else there, including our sound engineer, Mark Rivera and, uh, another producer, Natalie Miscali. Um, and so until next time. Uh, rate us five stars, please. We appreciate it. <laughs> and and uh, for Lisa Clank and myself, uh, until next time, the briefing room is now closed. Mr. Scott, would you repeat what you just told us? About an hour ago, the bridge control started going crazy. Levers shifting by themselves, buttons being pushed, instrument readings changing. And on my monitor screen, I can see Mitchell smiling each time it happened, as if his ship and crew were almost a toy for his amusement. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.